Well, I don't know about you, but I've been feeling it a bit hard lately to feel much enthusiasm for a new year. Um, I won't rehash the news items for you. I'm sure you've been all following the events of the past two weeks. I struggled this week preparing this sermon. It's, it's hard to give yourself wholly to something when there are so many competing distractions and discouragements. It's not only the, the global tragedies that are so disheartening. Um, there are certain trajectories and trends picking up speed in our own culture that make me almost sick to my stomach thinking about and trying to predict what kind of world my kids are going to inherit. Well, that's the kind of thing that just keeps you up at night. And perhaps I'm not alone. Perhaps there are some here this morning struggling to look forward to 2020. Perhaps there are trials closer to home within your family, within your church, within yourself. Instabilities, uneasiness, a general uncertainty about things. And all of this has made me realize again how too often our hope for the future, our optimism, rests on the endurance of inherently fragile things. A stable government, a stable career, a stable family, stable health, a stable income, a conservative culture. Good things, but all things, the Bible tells us, that will come and go and rise and fall. The affluence of the previous decades has allowed us to deceive ourselves into thinking these things are more permanent than they are. It's easy for a boat on the shore to look seaworthy. It's easy for us to take stock of our resources and think, yeah, we're going to make it. It's another thing to put the boat in the water and see how long it lasts in the storm. Is it possible for Christians to be happy, hopeful people in this world? In a time when a stable future seems less and less secure. When these things we've come to expect are no longer a guarantee. Well, the Bible's answer is yes. And it has always been yes. And it will always be yes. Because ultimately, the Bible's reason for hope isn't tied to the ebb and flow of circumstances. Rather, it is based on the inevitability of God's kingdom. And the eternity of his nature. And the safety and security of his children. If we are children of God, then, as David says... We need not fear when earthquake comes, earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. We need not fear when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, of increasingly hostile ideology as goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. We're told here in Psalm 103 not to forget God's benefits. Verse 2, maybe you have a job with access to certain benefits, eye care or dental. I've talked to several people who really don't have a lot of good things to say about their benefits package. And I want to say to them, that may be true, but you also don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> Try having zero benefits. <laughs> 
Don't forget or overlook the benefits you have, even though you may consider them to be negligible. And we as Christians do the same thing, don't we, sometimes? We forget God's benefits, which are definitely anything but negligible. Or we mistake and misrepresent God's benefits when we assume they mean a life free of discomfort and trouble and anxiety. Thank you. I will need that. But his benefits, the benefits of the Lord, are much fuller and deeper and far-reaching and permanent than those things. Think about the saints in Hebrews 12. You remember the ones that lived in caves, had no homes, were sought into? They saw God's benefits and knew they outweighed every hardship they might encounter in life. And I think reminding ourselves of God's benefits will go a long way to rekindling our hope for a new year, even if everything else looks bleak. We're going to do that by looking at one of God's greatest benefits over the next two weeks. That is the doctrine of adoption. What is doctrine? Well, doctrine, in the way I'm using it here, is an articulation of the Bible's whole teaching on a certain subject. And you might be asking yourself, what good is doctrine in this day and age? What will it change? What will it do for me? It seems like a dusty, ineffective road back to hope. But doctrine is actually the foundation of all of our hope. It clarifies, helps us understand what is so good about the good news. Without clear, biblically substantiated truth, informing and giving shape to our reality, we have nothing solid to build on. We're left with loose collections of thoughts, vague notions of things. Without doctrine, there's nothing to hold on to. God is love. Well, that's something. What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, as a doctrine, we could summarize God's love as that which existed from eternity and was finally demonstrated in God sending his son to atone for sin. That's doctrine, and that's a much more satisfying meal. We're going to split up this, I guess I'll call it a mini-series on adoption between this week and next. And I've done that because there's an already and a not yet aspect to adoption. It's true Christians are currently God's children, but what that will finally look like is yet to come. We won't see it until the new heavens and the new earth. So this week we'll be looking at adoption, a status received. We're gonna spend our time in Psalm 103 Specifically looking at justification and adoption because they're both sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. And next week we're going to be looking at Romans 8, looking ahead to what our adoption will look like in its final form under the title of adoption, a reality yet to be realized. So those, that's where we're going. What is adoption? Let's start with a brief, very bare bones definition. Adoption is the process by which God receives a justified, a forgiven sinner into his family. Adoption is the process by which God receives a forgiven sinner into his family. 
And as I just mentioned, adoption is a two-stage process. There's a justification, there's an acquittal that has to take place before the adoption can happen. There's a paying of debts before being received into a family. And I think these two stages are laid out beautifully for us in the first five verses of Psalm 103. We have here God's pattern of redemption mapped out for us. We see in verses three and four, God's rescue. That is, God forgives the sins of his people, redeems them out of the pit. That's justification. We see in verses four and five, God's restoration to relationship. That is that God brings his forgiven people into relationship with him, crowning them, surrounding them with love and mercy, making it so they soar like eagles rather than languishing in a pit. That is adoption. There are some Christians, I think, who may struggle with this, who are okay with being rescued, but are uncomfortable or maybe even unaware of what it means to actually live as a child of God, to actually be in relationship with him. I was reading an article recently dealing with what some have called evangelicalism's idolatry of mission. The author says, many Christians have unknowingly replaced the vitality of a life with God for the ego satisfaction they derive from a life for God. We are a group of people addicted to and obsessed with the work of the kingdom with little to no idea about how to be with the king. So you have a lot of professing Christians who look really busy and active and missional And their actual relationship with God is totally impoverished. It's about an inch deep, if it's there at all. We need to remember that though our mission is important, absolutely, it is also incidental. It has to flow from the gratitude and maturity that happens as we are satisfied in the triune God, as we abide in the vine. So our two broad headings today will be Rescue and restoration. And they correspond again to the two sides of the coin, justification and adoption. So let's look at rescue here. Verse three. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. What is iniquity? Well, iniquity is, and I quote here, a judicial state of being liable for a wrong done and so receive a punishment or judicial sentence. Iniquity is guilt, not just feelings of guilt, which we may or may not have depending on the state of our conscience, but actual, real, objective guilt. That is the state all all human beings are under. We have all broken God's law. And barring some kind of intervention, stand to receive the consequences of that law breaking. And the only path to pardon for that iniquity, for that guilt, is forgiveness by the one sinned against. You sometimes hear people talking about the need for more self-forgiveness. We need to be a self-forgiving people. And maybe there's a context where self-forgiveness might be relevant, but everything I've 
seen suggests there aren't many people who struggle with self-forgiveness, to be honest. And even if there were, the main issue is not whether we can forgive our own iniquities, whatever that means, or even whether we can forgive each other's iniquities, but whether God is the kind of God that will forgive our iniquities. That's the real question. Because our iniquity, our sin is ultimately against him. Maybe I've used this analogy before, but if I'm driving in the car with one of you and you run a red light or a stop sign, you get pulled over by the police, how impressed is that officer going to be if I lean over and say, it's okay, officer, we were talking, he was distracted, but you know he's forgiven himself and I've forgiven him, so don't worry about a fine, everything's okay. Not very. <laughs> Why is that? Because yes, though you may have sinned against me by putting me at risk, your ultimate iniquity is against the Highway Traffic Act. It's against the laws of the province. You are under a higher authority than me, and that authority alone has the right to absolve or condemn you. And Because God is the one ultimately sinned against. When we sin, only God is the authority to forgive our sin. But the really good news is right here in front of us. It's that God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, time and time again, demonstrates himself to be exactly that kind of God. The kind of God who forgives all our iniquity. Not arbitrarily, because remember, sin is costly. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. The animals that were sacrificed as part of the old covenant system were an example of that costliness, but just an example because unwilling, unaware animals are never going to be sufficient to take away sin. That's very clear. Not only do they fail to deal fully with iniquity, but they also fail to fully illustrate the full extent of God's love and mercy to us which is shown at its clearest through the cross. That's where we see it at its brightest. As God takes the cost of our iniquity on himself, he settles the debt to its last penny. Its last nickel, I guess we'd say. What do we call all of this? Well, in a word, in a doctrine, we call it justification. And if you're unclear about what justification is or does, you will yawn away the privilege of adoption. That's why a lot of the older Christian writers were always talking about sin and how bad and how deep and how pervasive it is. Because they knew that until people realize how bad things really are, they won't care about a solution. But let's move on. God's rescue does more than simply remove our debt. It deals with the disease of our nature. See, he heals all of our diseases. Verse three. Stain, stench, wounds, sickness. The Bible uses all of those terms as synonyms for sin. The torment that sin inflicts a soul with is a real thing. 
even though we aren't always aware of its devastation, of what it's doing behind the scenes. In Psalm 32, David talks about how his sin made him feel as if his, if his bones were wasting away, as if his strength were being dried up as by the heat, the heat of the summer. Just as the symptoms of a serious disease are obvious, so we have verses like those in Isaiah 1, where the disease of sin is referred to as a crimson and a scarlet stain on a white garment. Their damage can only be hidden for so long. In acknowledging sin as a disease here, in verse 3, David is acknowledging that sin is more than just a mistake or two. Rather, it's a part of his nature. Behold, he says elsewhere, David, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Isn't it interesting how when we respond to a situation, wrongly to a situation, we sometimes say, Sorry, that's not like me, or that's not really who I am. Now, that might work if it's actually the first time you've done that. But how often do we have to do something before we just have to reach the conclusion, wow, this is actually just who I am? You may have heard of total depravity. There's another doctrine for you. What it doesn't mean is that we're all necessarily as evil as we could be, or that we're incapable of doing any good things. It does mean that our whole being is in a state of spiritual death. That is why so few want to admit what all the evidence is pointing to, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Why we spend so much time trying to find our best selves Delving into childhood trauma to find reasons for why we are the way we are. There may be times for that. Excusing ourselves from toxic people. Also, we can convince ourselves that the problem is out there somewhere. It's not in here. We'd rather use words like flaws and faults. Those don't sound as dire as disease, do they? Maybe there are things that can just be dieted or philosophized away. Or we can write them off as a disorder. And we do all these things because we think the worst thing in the world would be to acknowledge the full extent of our disease. <laughs> that sounds so terrible, doesn't it? But that's actually the best thing we can do. <laughs> you realize what a wonderful thing it is to just Admit that you're sick. Not so you can just learn to live with your sickness, but because God is one who heals our diseases. Because Christ came not for the healthy, but for the incurably diseased, for the sin-sick hearts. And as we look to Christ, the one God has sent, we find our disease of sin healed as David does here. And we who were a jarring crimson to the Father are washed so that we're whiter than snow. 
Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. That's sin. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. He's talking about the blood of Jesus. Whiter than snow you may be today. Maybe this morning you, like David, feel your iniquities like waves are just going over your head, drowning you, overwhelming you. Don't be discouraged. Whiter than snow you may be today. Or maybe you don't feel the disease of sin at all. Maybe you think that you're healthy and whole. Remember that sin is a stain that we cannot hide. You may be able to hide from your family, from your friends, and from your church. But what you really are at your core is totally known to God. Number three, he, he redeems our life from the pit. Verse four, he redeems our life from the pit. Describing sin as a pit is a very good analogy. In a pit, you're completely surrounded by walls and darkness. In a place cut off from light, and from hope, from warmth, from air, someone who falls into a pit isn't getting out on their own. Outside of Christ, we are all citizens of that pit. Citizens in a city called destruction, which is what that word pit actually means. Just like Christian was in Pilgrim's Progress. That's where he was from, the city of destruction. Ruled over by a prince of darkness, who is the god of this world. Satan himself is king of that pit. And yet we're told here that not only is God a forgiving, healing God, but that he is a redeeming God. That word redeeming here means setting free, restoring to a previous state. That's why I chose the word rescue for the first heading, because rescue always implies another party doing the rescuing. We don't rescue ourselves. We don't heal ourselves. And we sure can't redeem ourselves. But again, acknowledging this helplessness doesn't mean that we're lost. When the Israelites were bitten with snakes in the desert, what was God's instruction to them? Pray away the poison? Muscle through it? Try to come up with an antivenin? No, it was look up, look, and live. And so our confession, our acknowledgement of sin isn't a surrender to misery. It means we can be free to look up instead of trying to find a way out of this pit on our own. Now some Christians stop here after justification. What more could there be to the Christian life than forgiveness of sin, rescue from hell, right? What are we supposed to do after justification but before glorification? Well, let me ask you this. When God made the world, did he consider it enough for humans to just live as detached citizens, living in proximity to one another? No. God made Adam and Eve to be one. He invented the family construct. 
because he knows that people also need the nurture and love and structure of a more intimate union. And just as it's difficult to thrive as a human being if you've never known family, so we can't hope to thrive as Christians without knowing where we now stand in relation to God. Are we just accepted? Tolerated? An irritating, not really welcome guest? Enter adoption. And as wonderful as justification is, it is at best base camp to the Everest of adoption. There's the pinnacle. There's the riches. We find those in our next verses as we move to our second heading, restoration. Restoration. It says there, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. The word crown here signifies honor. And notice the progression here. First, there's iniquity, which God forgives us of. Then there's disease, which God heals us of. Then there's a pit, which God redeems us out of. Now suddenly, there's a crown on our heads. That tells us that the honor here, the honor of the crown, has nothing to do with the efforts or virtue of the adoptee. The crown is entirely bestowed. It's a gift through a sheer act of mercy. And that's the amazing thing about adoption. After a child is adopted, it doesn't matter what kind of life he had before that moment. How poor, how alone, how neglected he was. All that matters post-adoption is the status and means of his adopting parent. In an ideal situation, when all the licensing goes through, an adopted child participates in all the benefits as any other child in that family. The same love, the same opportunity, the same resources. And that is true for God's children as well. Why have Christians risked their lives and their comforts for the gospel throughout all the long years of church history? It was because they knew that whatever honors they might receive out there in the world, they would be a sad replacement for the honor of being in God's family. The word crowned here also suggests something completely encircled. Surrounded, enclosed, hemmed in. So protected that that person can never be lost. That is the steadfast love and mercy of God for us. It is a love that originates from within the Godhead. That's the only reason it can be steadfast. If it was a love dependent on the faithfulness of its object, we would have a lot of reason to be discouraged. It's a love that began before the foundation of the world. A love that will continue into eternity. A love that will never waver or burn dimmer as more of our flaws are revealed. It's a love that will never lose any of its sheep. And God's mercy, God's steadfast love and mercy, what are the reaches of God's mercy? What will he not give to rescue a sinner? 
Well, he gave us his son, the most precious thing to him. And if he gave us that, we probably shouldn't doubt that his mercy will extend towards us in lesser things, should we? We always need to remember that, don't we? Sometimes circumstances happen in our lives that make us wonder whether God has forgotten to be merciful or whether his discipline is all we'll ever know. But if you start with cross-demonstrated mercy, well, that's a mercy. It's a whole lot harder to doubt, isn't it? Moving on, he satisfied us. He satisfies us with good, with good things. You get hungry when you're trapped on a pit for a long time, don't you? There's nothing to eat. Maybe you find some mud or some straw, some dirty water. But no one is going to eat any of those things and say, wow, great food down here, five stars. And yet we do that, don't we, sometimes? We take little sips of our sin and the little scraps of pleasure the world offers us, and we acclimatize to the taste of it. Get used to the emptiness. Get used to the disappointment. Convince ourselves that things in the pit really aren't that bad. But our adoption into God's family is an invitation into satisfaction. In his house, in his fellowship, there is a banquet prepared. We don't sit at the edge of the family circle looking in, hoping we'll get thrown a few scraps. We don't show up only to realize that God's hospitality was vastly exaggerated. No. We've been listening to uh, an audio drama of of Oliver Dickens' classic uh, as we're in the van to and fro from various trips. It's actually quite grim, (laughs) the original unabridged version just following the sad life of this little boy who's shuffled from one bad situation to the next. What always hits me the hardest is the neglect of those who are supposed to be treating him like family. You know, Oliver might get a scrap of meat left out for the dog or a crust of bread if he's really good. That isn't like God's family. Yes, in this world we go through trials and hard providence and sometimes we wonder whether God has our best interests at heart. But maybe it's not that God is against us. Maybe it's that God's best for us takes a much longer and deeper view. Maybe God's best is preserving us from those things that would have destroyed us had he allowed us to have Maybe the world events happening around us are working to encourage us to take a second look at the foundations we're building on. Reassess whether our one foundation is Christ, who is the one good thing, the preeminent benefit, the thing which shows up everything else for the comparative mud that it is. Finally, what's the result of our our new undeserved status as God's child? Well, it says in verse 5 that our youth will be renewed like the eagle. There will be a lightness, a freeness, an energy 
matched by an eagle in flight. Oliver was so happy when he was eventually adopted by Mr. Brownlow, wasn't he? To never again know starvation or the misery of loneliness and orphanhood. To actually be a little boy without constantly worrying about survival. What joy then for the Christian to know that even if everything else is taken away from him, he is hidden in Christ. Safe, in a refuge, preserved for an inheritance that will never fade away. Doesn't matter what's on the news. Doesn't matter how inevitable a war. Doesn't matter how dire the climate. Doesn't matter how angry the crowds get. We can be jovial. We can laugh loudly. We can shine brightly. We cannot be cynical and always assume the worst. We can give ourselves entirely for the good of others. Not because we're reckless or irresponsible, but because we're children of God. Can I encourage you to enter into the riches of adoption? Scale this mountain with me. A few of us were talking last week about the funerals of some Christians and about how sometimes as much of the gospel as you get in them is that they were nice people and they trusted in Jesus to forgive them of their sins and they were now in heaven. And those are wonderful things, don't get me wrong. But I really hope that the legacy of your Christian life is more than that. Were you satisfied in him? Did you live out and take hold of the privileges and benefits of your adoption? Were you someone full of hope because of your family status? Or did the substance, the full measure of the Christian life, just sit on a shelf somewhere? Well, you just went back to the pit to eat some mud. Spurgeon says... Our sin deprived us of all honor and a bill was issued against us as traitors. But he who removed the sentence of death by redeeming us from destruction restores to us more than all our former honors by crowning us anew. Shall God crown us and shall we not crown him? Up, my soul, and cast your crown at his feet and worship him who has so greatly exalted you as to lift from you the pit and set you among princes. Maybe the greatest resolution we can make for a new year is to resolve to live in our privilege as God's children. Surely that would... result in greater power and effectiveness in our Christian lives. Let's pray.